In his talk last night, Donald spoke a little bit about the story of the Buddha's enlightenment. And I want to continue and start right there because I think it's such an instructive story for us about the process the Buddha went through. So just to repeat some of the the details, he left a life of great privilege and luxury, set out on a quest and tried doing the the most available practices, the most popular practices uh, of the time. And they were concentration practices. He went to two different concentration teachers and practiced ardently and being who he was and very quickly achieved deep states of concentration to the extent that one after the other, these teachers said, you've learned all I have to teach. Come sit next to me and teach with me. But each time the Buddha said, no, you know, I see that these states as powerful and as deep as they are, are not what I'm looking for. They're not the answer because they're conditioned states. They come to an end. They don't free the mind and heart from suffering. So he left both those teachers and that practice. And that's instructive for us as we practice concentration, that it's a means, not the end. And then he tried another popular practice at the time, and that's extreme ascetic practices, where it was believed if you mortified the body enough, somehow the soul or the spirit, it was called the Atman, would be released and could join with Brahma and um, find liberation. And like everything he did, he was very good at it. And so he, he didn't eat much. It, you know, he said he got down to a grain of rice a day. I don't know how you even would measure it. I mean, I guess you could measure it, but it's like, why even bother, you know, <laughs> one grain of <laughs> rice? You know, wore rags, slept outside, etc. Um, and there's many images you can see that um, in Buddhist monasteries, you actually have one here at Spirit Rock called the Emaciated Buddha, and he's just gaunt like a skeleton. And then he realized that wasn't getting anywhere. He did that for years, actually. Years he lived and practiced like that. And he saw he was just, he was almost dying. And what's interesting is it came to him at some point when he realized not really getting where he wants to go, he had a memory. And the memory was of himself as a young boy, seven or 10 years old, sitting under the shade of a rose apple tree, watching his father, the Sakyan, plowing a field. And it's said to be a kind of ritual plowing. His father was a chief or a king, so it was a kind of fertility ritual. So the father's plowing. He's not working very hard, I'm sure. He's the head of the tribe there. Um, And the, the Buddha, as a young boy, is just sitting under this tree in the springtime, in the cool shade. And he remembered a deep feeling of contentment and ease that he had as a boy. And that's the memory that came to him in this emaciated state. And the thought, maybe that's the way. That ease, that well-being, rather than this torture of the body. So just imagine the qualities that that young boy experienced and that the Buddha was remembering. Sitting at ease, he was young, he had no duties. It was springtime, the weather was pleasant. So a sense of unhurriedness, of quiet out in nature, content. Again, instructive for us of what he saw as, as, a, as a direction. So he realized he needed a different approach, and this is where, and this, uh, Don mentioned this last night, he took some food. Actually, Sujata, a milkmaid, saw the emaciated Buddha and felt sorry for him, so offered him some milk rice. And the Buddha took that. He realized he needed nourishment. He couldn't continue in this um, weakened state that he was in. So this is what the Buddha said. So I took some solid food, some rice and porridge. Now five monks had been attending on me thinking, if Gotama, our contemplative, achieves some higher state, he will tell us. And again, Gotama, that's another name for the Buddha, was always advanced in the practice. So it was him and his five companions, they looked to him. But when they saw me taking some solid food, some rice and porridge, they were disgusted and left me, thinking, Gotama the contemplative is living luxuriously. He has abandoned his exertion and is backsliding into indulgence. So there he is as a skeleton, taking some 
rice gruel. They're like, you're not serious. I've been to Bodh Gaya, the site of the Buddha's enlightenment, and, and been to this place where it said this happened, where Sujata offered the Buddha some milk rice, and there's a beautiful stupa there and a, a, a temple commemorating this, this gift that she offered and this kindness and wisdom um, in her offering and how pivotal that was in the Buddha's uh, story. And so from that was the beginning of his enlightenment. You know, there's a lot more. We could make a whole talk of telling the story of his awakening. But that those um, few points are so instructive for us in our practice here. And when he did become enlightened, he thought, I need to tell the people who could understand. So he thought of his two concentration teachers. And in his awakening, it said he became omniscient. So he looked with his omniscient eye and found that they had both died. So he went to find the five ascetics and he found them in the deer park uh, in Saranath. And again, that's a, another beautiful site of pilgrimage. And when the Buddha approached them, this is some weeks after um, they had left him in disgust. They said, oh, here comes Gotama. Don't pay any attention to him. You know, he's backslid into indulgence. But he was glowing. He was radiant. And they couldn't ignore him. And so they made a seat for him. And he taught them. And what he taught them was the uh, Dhamma Chaka Puwatana Sutta, the turning of the wheel of the Dhamma, and basically the Four Noble Truths. And all of his teaching began from that day of teaching the Four Noble Truths. So again, a lot, we could tell the whole story. It's, it's uh, inspiring and instructive for us, but to point to what's relevant um, for the talk tonight and our practice here is what the Buddha discovered is what he called the middle way between indulgence, which he had totally experienced as a, a wealthy young man living a life of privilege, and mortification, ascetic practices. And this discrimination of what is wholesome happiness and pleasure, which leads to freedom and liberation, and that which is unskillful and leads to bondage and suffering. And again, this is central to his teachings for the next 45 years of his life. And this joy of present moment awareness and pleasure that's available to the mind that's awake, the mind that's free. And so to this day, this is a lot of what we point to, how powerful it is to be in the present moment and know what's happening. Another one of my teachers, later lineage, uh, Calvin and Hobbes. You may know <laughs> Calvin and Hobbes, the young boy and his imaginary tiger with Hobbes, usually the voice of wisdom. And this is one where Calvin and Hobbes are climbing a tree together. So in each frame, progressively, they're climbing up the tree. And Calvin says, I suppose the secret to happiness is learning to appreciate the moment. I, for example, take great pleasure in being right here, right now, doing exactly what we're doing as they're climbing this tree. And Hobbes says, of course, you're meant to be in school right now. And Calvin says, I couldn't appreciate those moments. So that's not refined wisdom. You know, it's the, the happiness of conditions, right? He's got the idea of being in the present moment, but the conditions have to be right for him for that kind of pleasure. So there's a whole theme in the Buddha's teachings about happiness and pleasure and contentment. There's also a strong theme about dukkha, about suffering, about stress. And you can actually think that practice is about suffering. We often hear, you know, Buddhism equals suffering. People will say, oh, if you know anything about the Buddha's teachings, he said everything is suffering, life is suffering. Well, he didn't quite say that. He said there is suffering. It's a truth. There is suffering. But we can be mistaken in thinking that if we're not suffering, we're not serious. And that if we're practicing, we're always kind of purifying. And if we're not purifying, we're not getting anywhere. So it seems like it's a struggle. It should be difficult. And that's when we're really like, you know, nose to the grindstone, getting things done, I, I, looking for what's wrong and fix, trying to fix it. I, I talk about that as being on what I call pain patrol, where it's like, where's the next problem? Body, mind, you know, someone else, inner, outer experience. And we're just scanning 
scanning for what's wrong. Um, Rick Hansen, who um, is very involved at Spirit Rock, was on our board for a long time and, and now is a, is a therapist who's um, bringing together neuroscience and the Dharma. He's written a good book called The Buddha's Brain. He says that it's, this is very ingrained for us, this looking for what's wrong. And he said the mind is naturally like Velcro for the unpleasant and Teflon for the pleasant. What's difficult, what's painful, it sticks and we remember it. It, it, you know, it, it has a big impact. And what's good and pleasant, we're like, oh, right, that's, you know, zoom, and that's gone. And his, a lot of his teaching is you really need to make an effort to cultivate and remember and, 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 and inhabit the pleasant and the good in life because it's so easily slipped off of and forgotten. And even in the Buddhist teaching, he never just taught about suffering, even though he did say there is suffering. And he might have even said there's a lot of suffering, a lot of suffering in a lot of things and a lot of your experience. But he never talked about suffering without talking about the end of suffering. He said, this is what I teach, suffering and the end of suffering. It's kind of the encapsulation of his teaching. And he was often described as the happy one described as radiant and serene. So in that is also instructive that willingness or interest or opening to the dukkha, to the suffering, is actually a doorway to happiness. And so this theme of happiness, joy, pleasure, contentment, again, is just as strong in the Buddha's teachings as those on suffering. After his awakening, this is, uh, after his awakening, the Buddha declared himself to be one who lived in happiness. He didn't say, "I live in dukkha." He said, "I live in happiness," because he had transcended the suffering. And Venerable Analaya, who's written some really wonderful books on uh, Buddhist teachings, and especially um, the essential Buddhist teachings, the early Buddhist teachings. I love this phrase. He says, the entire scheme of the gradual training, which is the Buddha's teachings that we're practicing, can be envisaged as a progressive refinement of joy. And this is someone who's deeply um, studied and practiced in the Buddha's teachings. And that's what he takes as the, again, the synthesis of this whole um, vast scheme of teachings, a progressive refinement of joy. But it's not about the kind of joy that on the material level we're used to thinking about or being told that if we get the right amount or the right kind to chase it, that that will equal happiness. He had done that, as I said, as a young man, lived a life of great indulgence. But really seeing that this turning to understand the nature of experience, the nature of dukkha, of suffering, actually working skillfully without difficulties, that's the doorway. That's actually the path to true and deep happiness. Again, back to the time of the Buddha, a visiting king described early Buddhist monks as smiling and cheerful, sincerely joyful and plainly delighting, living at ease and unruffled. So just again imagining a whole community of practitioners and someone coming to visit, and that's what they saw. I don't know what they'd see if they came here. We sometimes look a little glum, but maybe that's just because we're in silence and not talking. Hopefully inward happiness some, some of the time. In the Aranavibhanga Sutta, the Buddha said, one should not pursue sensual pleasure, which is low, vulgar, coarse, ignoble, and unbeneficial. And one should not pursue self-mortification, which is painful, ignoble, and unbeneficial. So again, that distinction. The middle way discovered by the Tathagata, another name for the Buddha, avoids both extremes. Giving vision, giving knowledge, it leads to peace, to direct knowledge, to enlightenment, to Nibbana. One should know how to define pleasure, and knowing that, one should pursue pleasure within oneself. So it may not be a message you've heard a lot before from the Buddha, but he's talking about a specific kind of pleasure. His definition of pursuing pleasure in oneself was this cultivation of concentration leading to the deep states of absorption we call 
jhana. And these teachings and practices are throughout the Buddhist text, talking about the benefit and the power of these deep states of concentration. Again, from the Buddha. Here, bhikkhus, and bhikkhus are deep practitioners, quite secluded from sensual pleasures, secluded from unwholesome states, a bhikkhu enters upon and abides in the first jhana, the second jhana, the third jhana, the fourth jhana. This is called the bliss of renunciation, the bliss of seclusion, the bliss of peace, the bliss of enlightenment. I say of this kind of pleasure that it should be pursued, that it should be developed, that it should be cultivated, and that it should not be feared. He really saw this as a path to these deep states of well-being, of happiness. And this retreat, one of the things we hope is you get just a little taste of that. I think we've said it's relatively short to develop these deep states. It takes most people weeks, if not months. But we're hoping on this retreat you get a a sense of that possibility and a sense of what it takes to collect and unify the mind so that it can deepen in this way. Unfortunately, as I said, this kind of pleasure is not easily accessible because it does take time and most of us don't have that time or the conditions. You know, in the Buddha's times, people gave their whole lives to this practice, even to this day. People ordain as monastics and spend months and years practicing in this way to deepen. And for us, the pleasures of the sense doors are often too easy to access. Not so much here on retreat, which is probably a good thing, but we live lives where Almost anything with a few clicks can arrive at our doorstep in a couple of days. I mean, it's kind of amazing what we have access to. Um, but here, perhaps starting to see other possibilities for a kind of well-being that doesn't need Amazon Prime. It doesn't need a Visa card. It doesn't need a refrigerator. Um, that actually is from this inner well-being. And even though... Yes, it takes more time to develop. There's a a stability there or or a a confidence in that that these other kinds of pleasures really can't bring. And there's also the pleasure of nature. It's one of, you know, spirit rock. It's not here by accident in this beautiful secluded valley with its sort of nestled groves of trees but then quite vast vistas. And in the Buddha's time, the Buddha recognized that, and his disciples also practiced mainly out in the forest, in the, in the woods. Um, and so we often encourage people, and I'm sure you all do, you practice outdoors. You certainly do a lot of walking outdoors. And it's one of the things I like about Spirit Rock is you have to be outdoors. doesn't matter what the weather is. You practice here in the winter, you're still outdoors. Our sister center, IMS, is a cloistered kind of retreat center. You can stay inside and go from one end of the building to the other, from your room to the bathrooms to the dining room to the meditation hall and not go outside. And they need that because they're in Massachusetts and it's freezing there in the winter. But you can get very kind of inward. And here we kind of force you outdoors all the time. And there's a real benefit to that, to the opening that happens as we... um, spend time out in nature, especially time out in nature without an agenda. Most of the time we're going through nature on a hike, getting somewhere, or we're looking to find a certain experience in nature, a bird or a tree or a flower. And here we're just being in nature. It's so powerful, so helpful. And it it does something to us, right? It shifts our relationship. I remember hearing Susie say, one of the reasons why nature is so appealing and inspiring to us is because it doesn't reflect back a sense of self. I thought that was so true. Hopefully, you don't kind of try to appropriate the nature here. Oh, this is my view, or my tree, or my turkey. It doesn't work, right? You know, you can try, but it doesn't work. It invites this sense of selflessness. We can lose ourselves, our sense of doing in the expansiveness and the beauty of nature. So really important to use that as a wholesome pleasure, as a skillful pleasure during our practice here. 
And there's a whole tradition of beautiful poems written by people practicing in nature and the, the, the joy and the uplift they have. Of course, a whole tradition of the Zen haikus, from, mainly from Japan and, and China. So I love this one by Ryokan because it's so simple. The bamboo grove in front of my hut, every day I see it a thousand times, yet never tire of it. And just that sense, you know, the view here basically doesn't change, but every time you walk out, there's that sense of expansion, of openness. And it, it doesn't change basically, but isn't it always changing? The light and the shadow and the fog. Unfortunately now the smoke and the haze, but this is the nature changing. And then a verse from the Theragata, Susie read the other day from the Theragata, which is the verses of the enlightened nuns. This is a similar book, the verses of the enlightened monks. The color of blue dark clouds, glistening, cooled with the waters of clear flowing streams covered with ladybugs. These rocky crags refresh me. So just a sense of someone being out in nature and being having their mind's eye and heart opened. And it's true that most of the Buddha's teachings were directed to his monastic community, who were renunciates, who were living very simple lives. But he also recognized the importance and spoke to what is skillful pleasure for lay people. We, for the most part, as I look around, are lay people, living a lay life. But he was very clear about the sources of pleasure, wholesome pleasure, skillful pleasure, skillful happiness for lay people. He talked about the happiness of possession, meaning it's okay to have stuff. The happiness of enjoyment, the happiness of freedom from debt, and the happiness of blamelessness. We often call that the bliss of blamelessness, which basically means living ethically, following the precepts, non-harming. And in another sutta, a lay person comes to the Buddha and says, Venerable Sir, we are lay people who enjoy sensual pleasures, dwelling at home in a bed crowded with children, enjoying fine sandalwood, wearing garlands, scents, and unguents, all the things the eight precepts tell you you shouldn't wear, accepting gold and silver. What will lead to our welfare and happiness both in the present life and in the future as well? So, You know, it's a different lifestyle, but some similarities to our lives now, just enjoying sensual pleasures, you know, having a livelihood, taking in money and spending money. The Buddha doesn't say, give up all that and go and live in a small hut. He he actually talks about what will bring true happiness. So he said, true happiness is developed by skillfulness in one's livelihood, basically having a livelihood that can support you and... um, is non-harming, being careful with one's savings, having wise and generous friends, and living in a balanced way, not extravagantly, but not miserly either. And more importantly, he also points to what will bring happiness in the future. So he talks about faith, and in Buddhist terms, it's not sort of faith as external faith, but the refuges that we took on our first night, faith in the, the, that there's a path that can be developed, so faith in Buddha Dharma Sangha. Again, moral discipline, following the precepts. Generosity, that gener- being generous actually brings happiness. And wisdom, that these deep teachings of the Buddha that point to the nature of reality, seeing um, the three characteristics of impermanence, unsatisfactoriness, and not-self will talk probably about those later in the retreat or in a modern framing it's not it's not permanent not perfect and not personal that this is the nature of reality and truly understanding that instead of being a bummer actually brings happiness so it was this combination of yes you know as lay people we have access to sensual excuse me sensual pleasures And that's okay, but we need to use them wisely and develop these other beautiful qualities of generosity and kindness and non-harming. And so, as we practice today, coming on retreats like this, we're kind of like lay renunciates. 
And we're in an interesting middle ground between the extreme asceticism and renunciation that true uh, monastics take up. But on a retreat like this, we live like monastics. We take precepts. We are served simple food. It's good food, but you don't get to choose what it is. You let go of a lot of the sensual pleasures of your life. And we're here because we have a sincere interest in this practice, in waking up, in deepening wisdom and compassion. And so we're, it's kind of like a big experiment that we're involved in here as the Dharma is coming to the West. In a lot of Buddhist countries, many lay people didn't practice meditation. Some did and some practiced very sincerely and very to deep states, both in the Buddha's time and today. But it's common that they, that they didn't. And so we're doing something quite different and quite interesting. And so we're charting kind of new paths. So what's a wise relationship for us as lay people to sensual pleasures? And that's, again, a whole exploration for each of us. There's no right prescription. But to raise these questions about happiness that the Buddha talked about, you know, what's, what's enough, basically? What's a skillful relationship to renunciation, which is one of the wise intentions or vitakas that um, I think Susie mentioned the other night? And what's true happiness? How much do we need? How much are we beguiled by the twinkling of the latest gadgets or experiences? And what do we really need to be happy? What's a wise life in this time with so much disparity, so much inequality, so much looting of the resources of this planet? How do we live wisely, given that's the case? And so this questioning is really important because as we practice, as we work with the mind and discover these deeper states of happiness, we can actually find ourselves in kind of a quasi-comfort zone. Um, We've worked out a lot of the difficulties of life. We've tamed the mind a little bit. We've trained the mind a little bit. We understand more deeply what causes suffering, how where freedom and happiness is found. I think that just generally happens as we get older anyway, but if you practice it, it really does happen. I've seen it in myself and in, in you know, the people I work with, my friends. But we can get a little complacent. One teacher I know calls it high-class samsara. We're still bound on this wheel of suffering, but we've made it comfortable. And so you know, the impetus to practice can kind of um, reduce But that kind of happiness is again dependent on conditions. Those conditions will change. It's inevitable. The heavenly messengers of old age sickness and death are our companions, whether we know it or not. And again, that's part of the story of the Buddha's awakening. It said that he was visited by these heavenly messengers, was in terror of them, of getting old, of getting sick, of dying. And that sent him on his quest. Well, they're still with us today and will be in an ongoing way. And it's true that all of us live lives of luxury compared to the Buddha, even in his luxurious time, but certainly in his ascetic practice, but compared to many other people on the planet, just even our simple rooms here with hot and cold running water and heat and and warm, clean clothes to wear. So many blessings. And we live in a culture of indulgence. You just have to read the food and wine section of your local paper where they're extolling about, you know, cucumber foam or something. I don't know what the latest (laughs) trends are, you know, where it's dollops of this and sprigs of that and people putting food together with tweezers, you know. It's like, what kind of food is that? There was a time where, 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 where the popular books, I remember, were titles like Under the Tuscan Sun and A Year in Provence, and they'd have a whole chapter on finding a right, the right tile or the perfect olive or something. And Millions of people wanted to move to Tuscany or Provence just to have that experience because they thought that was happiness. And it's, yes, there's happiness there. We don't want to deny there is happiness there, but it's not lasting happiness. It's not 
reliable happiness. And so we are open to a different path, a different possibility for really the highest happiness that's possible. That's what the Buddha always spoke about, the highest happiness that's possible out of contentment, not more stuff, not the right tile or olive oil or whatever it might be, but actually this deep sense of well-being that's not dependent on conditions. This is what the Buddha talked about. So what does this wise relationship to pleasure, contentment, happiness mean for us here, practicing, deepening in concentration? Again, we've talked about this difference between summer to practice that we're doing here, this stilling and simplifying and collecting and unifying the mind, and more traditional practices that most of you have done of vipassana or mindfulness practice where we're open to all of the six sense doors and changing objects. And so in vipassana practice, very much the practice is if whatever arises, turn your attention to it. If it's strong, if it's predominant in the senses of the body, of the mind, thought, mood, emotion, hindrance, pay attention to it, know it, name it, explore it. How do you feel it? How do you experience what happens with it? That's the traditional practice. If something pleasant happens, you may have had this experience. You go into a teacher and they say, oh, I had this beautiful experience. They go, oh, don't get attached. It's impermanent. It'll go, you know. And that's wise because that's true. But, you know, we can be, go out a little disappointed with our beautiful, blissful experience we just had. But it's different here. With the hindrances or any other strong experience, again, the main... Uh, intention is, can we say not now? Can we leave it in the background? And again, we've talked about gradations of skillful means, but basically we're saying, you know, keep with the breath, stay with this chosen object. When there's skillful, pleasant experiences, we actually want to deepen those. We want to allow, allow those. We want to embody those develop those, integrate those, these experiences of pity or sukha that Susie spoke about the other night, of calm or contentment or ease or just the sweetness of the breath. Yes, if that's happening, beautiful. Not grasp after it because, believe me, you can try that and I know you have and it doesn't work, but this settling back into it's just like kind of breathing it in so it fills every cell of the body. And we know that experience deeply. We don't reach forward grasping after it. We settle back and let it fill the body. And if you look at the lists that talk about developing concentration, we've touched on them, and I'll talk more about this tomorrow morning. All of the beautiful qualities of the day, like faith or rapture or joy or contentment or gladness, calm, equanimity. This is what this practice um, develops and what's essential for us, actually. I can remember when I had my first strong experience of sukha after having a lot of pity that at times was pleasant and at, at times very unpleasant, kind of relentless energy surging in the body. So the first experience of sukha, which is this quality of contentment or ease or happiness. I remember my uh, description of it, I felt like, you know, that kelp that's very long and kind of sways in the ocean, this seaweed in the ocean, that's these long fronds. I felt like I was a piece of kelp floating in a sea of warm honey. And just that sense of soft, sensuous sweetness. And guess what I did? Oh! That's what's been missing. Suka, I knew it. How do I get more? You know, who wouldn't? Of course, that didn't work. But knowing that, that quality and getting a sense of how it's cultivated and eventually developing a more wise relationship to it, it really is onward leading. Because in pity, I love when Susie said, pity, there's always kind of this energy of something's about to happen that's just out of my reach. And it's a dead end. It really is. It's a, what I've been telling people is pity is like a signpost. If the signpost 
It's a very nice signpost, and it says San Francisco, 25 miles, and you fall in love with the signpost. <laughs> Do you ever get to San Francisco? No, you've got to go in the direction it's pointing. Um, and that's what develops the path. And where it's pointing is always towards calming, always towards simplifying. So that's what leads to the deepening of the concentration. As I said right at the beginning, this is not about attainment. It's so much more about letting go and simplifying. Striving and effort and judgment doesn't help, doesn't get it there. So we need to really understand for ourselves what are the conditions for contentment. I talked about nature being one. A lot of what we're doing in the early days, it's why we talk about the hindrances and all the challenges and what are wise, what's wise effort in relationship to that, is when there's disturbances, can we let them go? In the beginning, they're often really gross disturbances. You know, the body's aching and the mind is irritated and restless and frustrated, but they get more and more subtle. And our attentiveness and our mindfulness has to match that subtlety of the disturbances. And so there needs to be some wisdom around this. We're not looking to create contentment by creating perfect conditions. I hope you've already figured out that doesn't, this is not as beautiful as Spirit Rock is and as much thought was put into making it a purpose-built retreat center. It's never going to be perfect, right? So I, I read from my, in my first um, opening talk from Ajahn Suchito, who's one of my teachers, and I, I deeply respect him as a, as a being and as a, as a teacher. And it's a great article he wrote called Samadhi is Pure Enjoyment. And he says this about this theme about contentment. It's important to question our perception of concentration and our attitude towards getting it. The getting it approach doesn't work in terms of appreciation of the present. But the present is all that we can fully directly be aware of. We're directly aware of the present moment through feeling it and being affected by it. And that's not a matter for thought or a goal. It's a matter of heart in the present. But if we're led by a work ethic that demands achievement, we lose present moment appreciation and enjoyment and we leave out the heart. And there's the mistake because there can't be any settling and unification without feeling it in the heart. Of course, the snag is the heart can be affected. And when he says heart, he means heart-mind, so it's all of the moods, emotions, thoughts. The heart can be affected by some pretty wild, scared, or nasty impressions and impulses, so a cleanup is needed. This becomes apparent as we meditate and find ourselves getting irritable and critical. For instance, when someone opens the door too loudly, or we don't like the way other people are walking, or the number of cushions they sit on. We find that the heart is out of touch with kindness or empathy, and this fault-finding attitude gets even worse if meditation practice is based solely on intense attention in which the discriminative faculties are heightened. So this is what we've been talking about, when the concentrated mind is inter turns to other objects apart from the breath, it heightens whatever that is. If the heart isn't gladdened and brought into play, the balance between head and heart is lost, and we get irritated whenever anything prevents us from getting that intense scrutiny, and by and large, everything, weather, body pain, noise, and of course other people, always does just that. In fact, getting samadhi seems to be the recipe for endless frustration. We may think we need to try harder, but this misses an important point. The heart needs to be purified, not through intense, intense attention on an object, but through wise reflection on our attitudes and approach. Then samadhi can come through an enjoyment that deepens as we purify the heart. So just a beautiful reminder that it's not through, you know, don't disturb me, I'm meditating kind of attitude, but really this inclusive, embodied breath and awareness that includes everything and includes this quality of metta that we've been cultivating in the afternoon. So all we need 
are good enough conditions. They'll never be perfect. We won't be perfect, the teachers, the other people here. Um, But if we can find again and again that possibility of back to simplicity, back to letting go, back to contentment. And now here, of course, we're using that um, or inviting that coming back to the breath. That's our main object here. You know, other ones can work, but that's the main one we've been talking about. What we all know by trial and error is you can't keep coming back to the breath through sheer force of will. You can get so far with will, and I know you've all tried. I'll just bear down, I'll knuckle down, I'll try harder, I'll breathe harder, I'll count more, I'll count longer, I'll walk more, I'll sit, whatever it is. You'll get so far, and that's why it's tantalizing, because it kind of works, but at some point, it always cracks, it always crumbles. And if you berate yourself every time that happens, every time you get lost or every time some disturbance happens, you know, we often use that image of training the puppy. If, every, if it, the puppy finally does come back and sit and you beat the poor little puppy up, it's not going to want to come back, right? And, but that's what we do to ourselves. Oh, you missed it again. You did this. You spent too much time. You had a cup of tea and you shouldn't or whatever it is that we berate ourselves with. We have to make it appealing to come back. And I, I learned a lot about this from another teacher, Ajahn Brahm, Ajahn Brahmawangso, actually an English monk who's ended up living kind of in the furthest place away from England, which is Perth, Australia. And he teaches deep states of concentration. And he tried this exact, uh, had this exact experience of really wanting deep states of concentration. He was a monk. He had all the time in the world. So he just tried and tried and tried. And when it didn't work, it would crumble. And then he'd just say, I just have to double down, you know, try harder, do it more, until he realized it doesn't work. He really realized it doesn't work. And he saw that he basically had an attitude about the breath, that it was boring, and the only way to keep his attention on it was to force it on it, because who would want to stay with something that was boring? Pretty makes sense. So you have to just fix it and force it. So he realized that wasn't working. He had to change his relationship to the breath. And so he developed this relationship with the breath he called subhasanya. And subha means beautiful and sanya means perception. And so it's subhasanya of the breath, beautiful perception of the breath. He shorthands it to beautiful breath. That unless we start or develop or cultivate a relationship with the breath that can see its beautiful qualities, we're never going to be able to force enough attention on the breath to come back to it again and again. Now, how do you do that? Again, that's the mystery of samadhi, I think Donald called it. Whatever we get interested in gets interesting. And so there's this dance between surrender to the breath and getting interested in the breath. Directing the attention to the breath, the sort of more proactive, and then receiving the breath. And actually just really beginning to appreciate the breath. So, you know, there's practices we can do. Imagine it's your first breath or your last breath or you've been drowning and you come up for air to just kind of highlight how important um, the breath is. It's what the purpose of vitaka and vichara are, this aiming and sustaining the attention on the breath. So we get really connected to the breath. So there's a whole sort of relationship to the breath that we all need to find our way into. Normally in Vipassana, we, are, we, we use the breath a lot and we're always like, just be with the bare sensations, just literally what's happening. But with concentration practice, it can actually be skillful to bring out the this pleasant sensations of the breath. The, 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 the beautiful aspects of the breath. So the softness of the breath, the silkiness of the breath. If, you know, again, not making this up, but if that's your experience, um, a sense of the breath like a breeze, like a swaying palm tree, you know, in a, in a gentle tropical breeze, the sense of the breath as this rhythm of life. Um, you know, all of these um, 
supports like counting the breath or, or noting of the breath. These are all ways to get more engaged with the breath, appreciative of the breath. And Tanasaro Bhikkhu also, um, I found him helpful in talking about making the breath more comfortable. Again, we've got to have a skillful relationship. We're not trying to manage the breath in any really overt way. It's not pranayama here. But to invite the breath in a skillful way, especially as we begin our practice, to be more comfortable. So the breath is easy, relaxed. And then we have to accept how the breath is. So we don't sort of then get stuck on that. And if you do find you're managing the breath, that's actually okay. You know, as you saw this morning, so many people have that relationship with the breath. All we need is a breath, managed or not. If we let go of the um, frustration about feeling we're managing the breath, there's a breath to be known. So wise relationship to the object but we're always simplifying. So I consider all these things I've just spoken about kind of our training wheels. And when we need them, we really need them. But at some point, right, you need, you need to let them go. You need to be freewheeling. And it's the same with the breath. All of these uh, approximations, skillful means, wise attitudes, until the mind just gently rests easily with the object. I did um, many years of just doing concentration practice, starting with metta, so I have a great appreciation of the power of metta as a concentration practice, but also a lot with anapana, what we're doing here, breath meditation. But in our main text um, that lists a lot of these concentration practices, the Vasudhimaga, there's actually 40 different kinds of objects you can use <clears throat> for meditation. <clears throat> and breath and metta, the Brahmaviharas, are right up there. As, you know, they're the, the, the most commonly taught. But other ones are prevalent too. And there's a whole area of practices called kasina practices where you take um, certain elements, elemental experiences like fire or water or air or colors. And you meditate, concentrate on these kasinas. And sometimes they're colored disks. And so it says, you know, in the text, you can gather from the blue casino all of the beautiful blue flowers and put them in a circle, and that's your meditation object. And blue casino is kind of an entry into this casino practice. So on one of my long retreats, I thought I would try it. I didn't have a teacher. I couldn't find anyone who'd done it, so I was just reading these texts. And all I had, we don't have any here, but... I had one of those pale blue zafus. You know that robin's egg blue that's kind of a bit faded? There's, I have one at home. Um, and so I thought, well, that's blue and it's a disc. I'll, I'll meditate on that. So sat this zafu in front of me. <laughs> and the idea is you, 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 you absorb into the, the disc and the color until you, until you close your eyes and you're... you're in inner vision is just filled with that color. So. It wasn't working. Uh, the blue Zafu um, wasn't doing it. So I thought, well, what's the most beautiful blue that I know? And I thought of a swimming pool on a sunny day when it ripples and those colors reflect on the side of the pool, the bottom of the pool, or the blue of a tropical ocean. And I use that as an inner, in, in the Buddhist, you know, it's teaching say you can, you can um, use a visual image for some of these casinas. And I can't say I, you know, mastered this practice, but changing to something that, that invited me in that was beautiful, I had so much rapture and contentment. I mean, sometimes a little out of balance, but it was just instructive that for the mind to really rest, we somehow have to fall a little bit in love with our object. We talk about the beloved breath, um, making the breath our beloved. And finding our way here is so helpful. And I hope as I'm saying this, you know, all oh, right, now that's the way in. And then we strive again, you know, to make that happen, to make our experience pleasurable when we're really struggling, when we're, dif you know, when things are difficult. And I always say we have to have the retreat we're having and whatever's up for us, this is also an important part of our practice. 
um, opening to the dukkha, the difficulty, compassion, is always, also a doorway to happiness and to contentment. So we want to be right where we are because we're so used to thinking, hearing something and going, oh, that's it. I'll just do that and I'll get there. Believe me, I know what that's like. I've, as I said, done quite a lot of uh, concentration practice um, and we get, I get, we get ideas about how it should be and what we think other people are experiencing, what we hear the teacher saying and what we think their experience was. And we reject experience, want this experience, not that experience. And as I said before, it can be really gross, kind of obvious, like real aversion or grasping. But it can get really subtle, really subtle, where even what I've said tonight, you know, you might start manipulating the breath to, to get certain experiences. And it's only, um, you know, when we, as I said, when we're man- managing the breath, we can kind of feel we're over-efforting and we want to not get frustrated by that and just have a wise relationship to that. But when it gets very subtle, it's hard to see. I did a, a long retreat with Pa Oksayada, who's a very uh, deeply respected concentration teacher all about the breath. And on that retreat, you got interviews every day and the basic scope of the interview until you got to a deep state of concentration was, how long can you be with the breath? Five minutes, 10 minutes, 20 minutes, whatever he said, he basically said, double that. Come back and tell me when you've you know, done more, try harder kind of thing. But I knew about concentration and relaxation and ease, so I was, you know, knew it would take time and I was reporting every day and you know, got, you know, getting deepening and, and uh, along that trajectory. Until one day, I was practicing in my room, I was at the Forest Refuge, and I don't know how it came, but a thought just came, I'm just being with the breath in order for something to happen. And basically in order that I can have something to say at my interview that was coming up, you you know, not so long. And I had a whole agenda about being with the breath, not to be with the breath for itself. There wasn't just trust or contentment or simplicity. It was in order to have an experience, have something to say, have something deepen. Anyone sound familiar? And when I realized that, it was so amazing. I saw that instead of, you know, I thought I was just sitting there calmly, quietly breathing. I just felt tension through my whole body. I felt how I was leaning into the breath, even though it was really subtle. A moment before I hadn't noticed it, I saw how much striving was in that subtle mind state, that subtle agenda. And I basically had to get up and go for a long walk and almost begin again, get my practice really spacious, have the biggest breath, the the grossest breath I could find, and just breathe in this sort of, you know, healing kind of way and gradually settle down again. But my perception about the subtlety of striving was just really heightened for that. And I, from that, you know, and, you know, of course it goes in and out, but I really learned something about just letting the breath be the breath, not in order to, not in order to get something. You know, the Zen teachings are so powerful here. You sit just to sit. The sitting is the end. You know, the sitting is the goal. And so bringing right attitude to this practice is so important that the relaxation, the contentment, the simplicity is so valuable. One of my concentration teachers, she said, when I was again practicing at the Forest Refuge, where there's an open schedule, she said, Just sit until you get restless, then get up and walk for a bit. And then when you feel, walk for a little while and then come back and sit. So it was like, sit, walk, sit, walk. Here we have to have a schedule. We've got so many people, but it was actually really interesting. And so the mind didn't feel, I'm sure you've had, you know, those sittings where it's like, that person's forgotten to ring the bell. I know they've forgotten to ring the bell. And that just gave me permission to just sit as long as the mind was comfortable and when it wasn't. The other thing she said was so helpful, she said, Every now and then, just sit in a comfortable chair and stare out the window and just let the mind kind of rest and soften. 
It's just inviting this sense, we're not going anywhere here. It's more about letting go. And so I started to learn the value of contentment. It was a new thing for me. I didn't know you could be contented in practice. And to trust simplicity. And that it's okay to enjoy practice. Of course we don't enjoy it all the time. We're all going through ups and downs. And there's inevitably difficulties. I went through a lot. I still go through a lot in my practice. But just really allowing, giving ourselves permission to have the skillful, cultivate the skillful use of pleasure in our practice, in our lives, and to know that it's onward leading when it's compared with these wise attitudes that include renunciation and simplicity and ethical conduct. So important for us. And so Tanisaru Bhikkhu, who I've mentioned a couple of times, a monastic who lives down in San Diego, he says, how do you use pleasure? Focus on the breath right now and see how it feels. Then experiment with the breath. He's the one I said who talks about um, making the breath comfortable. Then experiment with the breath to see how the way you breathe can produce either pleasure or pain. It may be subtle, the difference between the two, but it's there. We've learned to desensitize ourselves to this aspect of our awareness, so it's going to take a while to resensitize ourselves, to begin seeing the patterns. This is why we practice. Keep coming back to the breath, coming back to the breath. Try to get more sensitive to this area of your awareness, more skilled at learning how to maximize the potential for pleasure right here and now, simply by the way you breathe not only producing pleasure, but also maintaining it. After all, the feelings of pleasure and rapture are part of the path. They're tucked in the Noble Eightfold Path right under right concentration. And as part of the path, they have to be developed and maintained. As the Buddha said, this pleasure is blameless. And I'll finish with the words of Ajahn Suchito. He says, this is the enjoyment of samadhi, I think of enjoyment as receiving joy and samadhi as the art of refined enjoyment. It is this careful collecting of oneself to the joy of the present moment. Joyfulness joyfulness means there's no fear, no tension, no ought to. There isn't anything we have to do about it. So there is stillness. It's just this. So let's Let the words settle into stillness. Thank you for your attention. There's about half an hour for walking meditation. And again, it's a nice time of night to be outside. Again, we don't often wander about at night in nature. So outside in the cool night air, perhaps a view of the moon, maybe even of Jupiter, a cup of tea, some stretching. And if you have the energy coming back for our last sit with chanting, sometimes we can get into a habit on a retreat at this time, I do X. And sometimes that X is go to bed. You know, you're tired, it's been a long day. But just to really check in, is that what's called for right now? Is, is there perhaps a little more energy, a little more 
um, ability to just relax, sit back, walk a little bit, stretch a little bit, and come back. So just see what works for you. Thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.